0: Well, good morning, good morning. It's great to gather with you again, Convergent Church. If you're joining us for your first time, welcome. My name is Dan, and I'm one of the pastors here at Convergent Church. And here at Convergent Church, we live and labor to see Christ's kingdom come to the city of Owasso, to see the reality of his rule and his reign become increasingly visible in our city. That is to say that we live and labor to see our city transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ until the day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he is Lord. This is our one singular aim as a church and it is for this very reason that we've gathered here as a church this morning. In this morning we find ourselves in week six of a sermon series through 1 John we've titled Our Joy Complete. In week's past we've examined how our joy is made complete in Jesus. We've learned of the call to walk in the light as Christ is in the light. We've learned how when we sin, Jesus stands as our advocate with the Father, the very propitiation for our sin and not only ours, but also the sins of the whole world. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he paid the price for our sin in full once and for all. And we've learned how our obedience to God's commands substantiates our claims of knowing Him, as does our love for one another. This morning we will be in 1 John 2, verses 15 through 29. And the focus of our study will sort of be a, a consummation of all of these things. The question that I endeavor to answer for us in our text this morning is, what is the way of eternal life. How is it that someone obtains eternal life? Life that transcends the end of our time here on earth. What is the path that we should take? It is the the most important question that we could ever ask because there is nothing more important in this life than laying hold to the reality of this, especially in light of these following texts. James 4.14 says that our time on this earth is but a vapor. A morning fog that is here for a moment, but then quickly vanishes away. 1 Peter 1, 24-25 declares, All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Psalm 144 4 says, Man is like a breath, his days are like a passing shadow. Job 14.1 is slightly more optimistic, declaring that the days of mankind are few and full of turmoil. The picture here is that though at times life seems long and tumultuous, in the spectrum of eternity, our time here on earth is very, very short. The blink of an eye even. This means that what we ought to be most concerned about is our eternal fate. Fate. In the world of COVID-19 and continued wars in Afghanistan, many have a heightened awareness of their own mortality and thus a greater fear of death. Right here in our own church, we have families with loved ones who have passed away due to complications re- related to COVID-19 in just the last couple of weeks. Afghanistan as a whole is in chaos right now and Christians are being executed daily for their faith in Jesus. So how do we obtain eternal life, a life that transcends the grave? More than this, how can we be certain of that eternal fate? How can we have confidence in this, a confidence that overcomes all of our fears? What is the way of eternal life? If you will, bow your heads with me for a moment of prayer. Lord, we thank you for the freedom that we have to gather as your church this morning to sing of your praises, to fellowship with one another, to partake in the Lord's supper, to look upon your word and be reminded of who you are and of all that you have done. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would come and that you would open our blind eyes to see you. That you would open our deaf ears to hear your word. That you would soften our hard hearts to receive it. God, would you give us a greater picture of who you are? Will you give us a greater picture of what you have done? As Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus, will you give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Christ, that we could know you and that we could love you more? We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's go ahead and let's jump into 1 John. We're going to be in chapter 2, and we'll start reading... In verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does, The will of God abides forever. So we see here that our first step on the path to eternal life is: do not love the world or the sum of its parts. John begins by very pointedly telling us that if we love the world, then the love of the Father is not in us. Now that's a bold way to start. And it begs the question: what is the world and what are the things of the world that John is referring to here? Because it can't be referring to God's creation because God is the creator of the universe. And upon finishing his work of creation, he declared it all to be very good. We see that in Genesis 1 and 2. It also can't be referring to the world of people for whom Christ died. Because John 3.16 John 3, declares, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever shall believe it on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So what is John referring to? He gives further context and clarification to this in verse 16, where he speaks of the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. The word desire means cravings, lust, or passions. The word itself is neutral, The object determines whether the desire is a good godly desire or a bad sinful desire. So desires of the flesh. This is speaking to the bent in all of mankind to fulfill natural desires in a way that is contrary to God's will. This can refer to uh, a sexual appetite that gives way to sexual immorality. Seeking gratification for natural sexual desires outside of God's design. That is to say, outside of the marriage covenant. Or it could be speaking to a physical appetite that gives way to gluttony. Overindulging in food as a means of comfort and escape. We also see desires of the eyes. This is speaking of sinful cravings that are activated by what we see. And often leads to covetousness. It was the desire of the eyes that led King David to commit adultery with Bathsheba. Though she was someone else's spouse, he looked upon her and he liked what he saw and determined that he had to have her at any cost and acted upon it. The pride of life. This is speaking of materialism, pride in one's living. Maybe it's, it's pride in your physical attributes, or maybe it's, it's pride in your intellectual aptitude, pride in one's livelihood, pride in their career or social status. Or maybe it's pride in one's possessions, pride in your property or in your home or your car or the sheer amount of the stacks of cash that you have in the bank. These three things, desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride of life are the very means by which all of mankind fell in rebellion against God. Let's briefly examine Genesis 3, verse 6, if you want to turn there. Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Desires of the flesh. Eve was hungry. She knew the fruit of the tree could quench her hunger. Desires of the eyes. We see the fruit of the tree was said to be quote-unquote, a delight to the eyes. It looked good to eat. It was enticing. The pride of life. The fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was said to make one wise, giving knowledge of good and evil. But if we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, we read, and God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. You see, in the garden, God had already provided for their every need, yet they sought their fulfillment outside of God's provision. He provided all kinds of seed bearing trees to satisfy their natural desires for hunger. And he forbade but one tree. They had no lack, and thus they had no need of it. But that forbidden tree was close by. It was convenient. It looked good. It was sure to quench their hunger, and they thought it would make them wise. A natural desire became a bad desire when the object of the desire became something that was forbidden by God. And like Adam and Eve in the garden, we too, all too often, we seek our gratification and fulfillment uh, for our natural desires outside of God's will. Or, Or stated in a different way, all too often we seek redemption, rescue, and reprieve from the difficult things of this life and of this world in the world instead of in God. In his book titled uh, Recovering Redemption, Matt Chandler explains how all of mankind seeks this redemption, reprieve, and escape in one or in a combination of all four of these ways. The first being that we seek redemption in ourselves. We think that the cure that's what's, for what's wrong with us is a well-oiled creation of a better version of ourselves. We think, man, if it was only five years from now, We think, man, once I have this higher position at my place of employment, then everything will be better in my world. Or maybe it's once I have this much money in my savings account, then all will be well with my life and I will have no other need. Or it could be, man, once I lose this 40 pounds, have toned arms or have six pack abs, or ladies, when you can fit into that little black dress, then all will be right with your world. Yet when we've achieved a better job, more financial stability, a better physical appearance, none of those things will bring ultimate satisfaction. None of them can redeem our lowly state or ultimately fulfill us. They may be gratified for a moment, but always leave us wanting a better job, more money, and even better physique. He also took note of that we seek redemption in others. When we're single, we think, if only I had this spouse, then that will fix me. That will cure my insecurities. Or maybe then I won't be lonely. Or maybe that will curb my sexual appetite and save me from lust. However, marriage is hard, is it not? And there's always an element of struggle within our marriages, is there not? That's especially the case when we make the person wearing our wedding ring into a God who's supposed to make us feel complete. On this point, Chandler commented, the expectation that others can somehow become for us the answer to all our problems is to place an impossible weight on them that they were never intended, created, or equipped to carry. People make really sucky God's. Number three, we seek redemption in the things of the world. We think that if if I just had this new outfit, then I'll feel better about myself. Or if I just had this car or a home in that neighborhood, or if I just had the the latest Apple device, then all will be well. Then I will feel gratified. Then I will feel fulfilled. Then my sorrow will be done away with. And there's usually a short window once we've laid 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 hold of these things when everything feels okay. It feels better for a moment. But in reality, we're the same guy or same girl, only with less money in the bank and more debt on the way. But until those bills start rolling in, you'd never know it from the smug look on our faces or the swagger in our step. The things of this world, no matter what cool shape of toy or trinket they assume, are all on a collision course with the junkyard at some point in their life cycle. We're elevating created things over the creator. We're using the gifts of God as if they themselves are gods who can meet all of our needs. And lastly, Chandler speaks to how we can seek redemption in religion. We seek redemption in in religious duty. In our pursuit of remedying our own brokenness, we can act as if there are scales that need to be tipped. We feel that for each bad thing we do, we must do something good to balance out the scales. So we serve the church, we give of our tithes and offerings, we do good to others, yet we do these religious things not in an effort to glorify God or to grow in our relationship with Him, but in an attempt to earn favor from Him, in an effort to tilt the scales in our favor. The problem, there are no scales. We're either totally justified by the sacrifice of Jesus or we are not. The idea of Tilting scales is based on the very unbiblical notion that it's good people who go to heaven. Again, quoting Chandler here. In reality, it's bad little boys and girls transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those, who were, those whose sins are covered by his redeeming work, who love him so much because of it, they live now to flush out these desires, he's placed within them in a way of expressing their willing worship. Not to buy their way inside, but to celebrate being inside. And let's wrap it up here with a point of application. Verse 17 in 1 John 2. The world is passing away with its desires. The things of this world, while they can momentarily divert our attention from the brokenness of the world within us and without, they cannot save us. They offer no hope beyond the grave. So John is instructing us to not give our love, our lives, and our devotion to the things of the world that are temporary and transient. To things that are fleeting and lacking eternal value. To things that are ultimately passing away with this world. What is the way of eternal life? Let's read the end of verse 17. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Do not love the world or things of the world, but rather love God and abide in his will. This is the way of eternal life. And we'll talk in greater detail in a few minutes about what it means to abide in God's will. But for now, let's continue on in 1 John and let's pick back up in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. But you have, been appoint, you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. The last days. Antichrist. Antichrist. Antichrist, if you're anything like me upon first reading this, you're probably thinking, well, that took a sudden and dark turn. Where did that come from? And at this crossroads, I feel like there are two kinds of people. Those who completely check out thinking, nope, this stuff is weird. Like I just came to hear the gospel and I want to learn how to better follow Jesus. And then there are the quirky end times fanatics whose ears perk up. And say, global pandemics, wars and rumors of wars. I told you all, the end is coming. Let's go. Regardless of which end of the spectrum you fall on or somewhere in the middle, hang with me for just a moment and don't check out because the text itself will give us some greater context and insight into what John is talking about. Let's continue reading verses 22 and 23. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. As much as these terms sound apocalyptic and very similar to John's vision and revelation of the end of time and the great enemies. Of God's redemptive plan who appear there, that is not what John is speaking on here. Rather, this is how he defines the Antichrist. Verse 22 He who denies the Father and the Son. John is saying that anyone who denies Jesus as the Son of God is an Antichrist, and that no one who denies the Son has the Father. The last hour. The last hour began with the death and resurrection. Of Jesus Christ. This can be seen in Hebrews 1 1 through 2, which reads Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Listen, the second coming, the physical return of Jesus, could occur at any time. However, Matthew 24, 14 says that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So, while it's true Jesus could come at any time, Matthew 24, 14 is emphatic that the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the entirety of the world before the end will come. And there are currently 4,524 unreached people groups in the world. That's 3.27 billion people who have never heard the good news of Jesus. So taking into account that there are over 7 billion people in the world, that means that the gospel has not been proclaimed to nearly half of the world. So I think it's safe to say that we're probably gonna be waiting a while. But back on topic If John isn't referring to the apocalypse or the end times, what in the world is he talking about? As Jameson had mentioned earlier in this sermon series, the opponents to which John was addressing are the secessionists, a group of false teachers. See, they they claimed to know God, but they also claimed to be sinless. They also denied that Jesus is the Christ and that he was the very son of God. Though beginning in the Christian church, they abandoned the Word of God and they denied Jesus as the Son of God, making them antichrists, those who were against Christ. John says that if they had truly been of like faith, they would have continued in that faith. And this brings us to our second point in our pursuit of understanding the way of eternal life this morning, and that is this. Realize that there is only one way to eternal life. And hold fast to it. Verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. There is only one way to God the Father and thus eternal life, and that's through His Son, Jesus. Those who deny Jesus as the Son of God are antichrists. They steal from the Christian worldview, omitting Jesus as the Son of God, and in turn fashion and worship a God made in their own image instead of worshiping the one true God. We've all heard the illustration about every world religion being a path up the same mountain to God, right? That there are many paths leading to one God and thus eternal life. The idea here is that every world religion is just a differing expression of the same God. Again, many paths, one God. This is called syncretism, and it's nothing new. It's a melding together of different world religions in an effort to produce unity or some semblance of inclusivism. The thought is that because Islam and Mormonism and Rastafarianism and Gnosticism and a handful of other world religions all include Adam and Eve, Abraham, and even Jesus in their narrative, that we must all actually be worshiping the same God. The problem with this is that these other religions have stolen from the Christian worldview to create their own. It's borrowed capital. They've taken the parts of the Christian worldview that they like. They say Jesus was a nice guy who did some cool things. They may even call him a prophet, but reject him as the one and only sinless son of God who takes away the sins of the world. Fully God, fully man. And in turn, fashion and worship a God made in their own image. But in addition to this, There is one major fundamental difference between Christianity and these other world religions that we need to take special note of. Muhammad said, follow me, I know the way to eternal life. Joseph Smith said, follow me, I know the way to eternal life. Marcus Gray said, follow me, I know the way to eternal life. Yet Jesus came saying this, Follow me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. If you had known me, you would have also known my Father. Jesus is not a way, as in one of many. He is the way, as in the one and only. No one, I repeat, no one, regardless of reputation, achievement, special knowledge, or personal holiness can come to God the Father except through Jesus. I stand here this morning to tell you that there is but one way to the Father, my friends, and there is but one way to eternal life, and it is through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Each and every Sunday here at Convergent Church, we gather to worship, to fellowship, to sing, to hear from God's word, to pray, to partake in the Lord's Supper with one another. But why? Because of this one reality. The good news that the creator God of the universe loved a people so much that when they fell into sin, when we sinned, when we rebelled against him, when we disobeyed his righteous law, he executed his plan for redemption and sent his only son, Jesus, to live the perfect, sinless, and righteous life. We were unable to live and to die the sinner's death on a cross that we deserved to die. And in believing upon Him, in believing upon this sacrifice, our sin, our debt, our record of wrongdoings is absolved. The judgment we deserve for our willful rebellion is canceled, and we receive reconciliation to the God of heaven and earth because Jesus bore all our sin, all our shame, and all of our guilt. But even more than that, He rose from the grave and conquered sin's power over us, Because Jesus' resurrection, we now have the power to say no more to sin and to say yes to Jesus. Jesus conquered death and offers us a hope beyond the grave. In Christ and in Christ alone, we have access to the the Father and eternal life. So my plea with you today, if you haven't already, is will you but... Believe on Him this day. Will you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that He is Lord? Because this gospel is the very power of death to life. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is only one way, one path to God the Father and life eternal with Him. And His name is Jesus. So, there's only one way. But what now? Believe it in your heart. Confess it with your mouth, but then abide in it. 1 John 2, verses 24 through 25. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us eternal life. Point number three, abide in God and in His Word. John is saying, hold fast to the Word of God that you heard when you first loved and when you first believed. Hold fast to this gospel. Abide in this very teaching. The gospel is not something that we graduate from and move on from. We never graduate from the gospel. It's been said that the gospel is the diving board into the pool of Christianity. It's what you hear, receive, and believe to become a Christian. And while this is partly true, the gospel isn't just the diving board. The gospel is the pool itself, and we ought to constantly be swimming and soaking in it. You see, the secessionists though once a part of the early christian church wound up forsaking the gospel of jesus christ because they didn't abide with him and his word as revealed in scripture this is what jesus says in john 15 verses 4 and 5 abide in me and i in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine neither can you unless you abide in me i am the vine You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And how is it that we are to abide? Verses 9 through 11. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We abide in God and his word through our obedience to his word. And obedience to his word makes our joy complete. Our joy is made full in him. Imagine with me for a moment, you found the man or woman that you wanted to spend the rest of your life with. You got well acquainted with one another through your time of dating and engagement, but then immediately upon being married, you just completely stopped talking to one another. How would that go? I don't know about you, but my wife and I thought we knew each other really well before we were married, only to begin living together and realizing, dang, maybe we don't know each other as well as we thought we knew each other. And I think we also discovered that each one of us had some serious quirks, right? Or at least I, okay, I had some serious quirks. Different work schedules, different, uh, different times of going to bed, different ways of doing the laundry and doing the dishes. Marriages without communication don't work, amen? I would go as far as to say as almost all of our problems in marriage are related to miscommunication in some form or another, And the lack of communication produces a chasm and people begin to grow apart. And if it's left unchecked, the temptation to begin looking for fulfillment outside of our marriages for what's presently lacking in our marriages as a result of our lack of our communication or miscommunication can become an ever-increasing reality. That is to say we can start looking outside of our marriage covenant for what we don't have in it. I say all this to say, to abide in God and His Word is to be in communion with Him. False teachings, heresy, and Christian deconstruction happen when people forsake their first love. When they forget the gospel because their communication with God through prayer and the reading of His Word ceases. To abide is to daily commune with God through prayer and the reading of His Word and to do what it says. When we cease to abide, we open ourselves up to anything and everything and to any one and every one. Now, please don't hear my admonishment to be in the Word and in prayer daily as being pharisaical. I've just yet to meet anyone who has effectively loved God with all of their heart, with all of their soul, and with all of their mind while not regularly communing with Him. But this is the promise He has made to us. When we abide, and this is the promise, eternal life. Let's wrap up this section in verses 26 through 27 in 1 John chapter 2. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true... And is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. This is admittedly a little confusing upon first reading it. As John's saying that we should never have anyone teach us. As always, context is key. John said he is writing these things to them about those who are trying to deceive them. That is the secessionists, these false teachers who deny the Son of God. He continues to explain that the anointing they received from God abides in them. This anointing is the indwelling Holy Spirit. He's saying, because you have the Spirit who bears witness about the Word of God, they have no need for any of these false teachers and what they may teach them. They had no need to hear of anything that diverges from the gospel that they received because the Spirit leads and instructs them in all truth. He then admonishes, admonishes them yet again abide in the lord does that make sense i know it's it's a little bit confusing but after all john in this letter is teaching them i'm teaching you so clearly he isn't saying there's no value in teaching jesus himself commands us to make disciples and what to teach them all that i have commanded the context is that we have no need for false teaching we need to abide in what we've been taught from the beginning, as the Holy Spirit bears witness. And let's wrap up this morning in verses 28 and 29. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices Practices righteousness has been born of him. I'll end by simply saying this. Your labor is not in vain, church. Abiding in the Lord is seldom easy and is often accompanied with great suffering, but it's worth it. Because life is a vapor, like the morning fog that is here for a moment and then passes away. What matters most is our eternal fate. What matters most is our eternal destiny. Do not love the world or the sum of its parts, its passing away. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. There is but one way to eternal life, and his name is Jesus. Abide with him and in him through prayer and daily meditation on his word, daily renewing our minds. This is the way of eternal life our forsaking of the things of the world, our laying hold of Jesus as the only way and abiding in what he has commanded produces in us a confidence at his coming and keeps us from shrinking back in shame. He is righteous, and if we walk in his righteousness, we can be certain that we belong to him and thus certain of our eternal destiny. And whatever life throws you this week, take heart. Because the best is truly yet to come for the people of God, we bow with me for prayer. Father, we thank you for doing what we weakened by our own flesh could not do. Lord, we were all dead in our sin and in our transgressions. None of us could come to you in and of ourselves, but because of your great love, you sent Jesus. And Lord, we thank you that Jesus came and lived the life that we were unable to, to live, that Jesus came and died the death that we deserve to die, and that by believing on him, we are said to be holy and blameless before you. So God, today and in the days to come and in the weeks to come and in the years to come, I pray that you would guard us and keep us from forsaking this first love. Lord, will you help us to cast away the things of the world. Would you help us to flee from the things that we seek gratification and fulfillment in and outside of you? In our moments of despair, will you, by your spirit, remind our hearts that there is but one way to our redemption, that there is but one way to the Father, that there is but one way to eternal life, and it is through Jesus. And he has said, come unto me all who weary and who are heavy burdened, and I will give you rest, for my burden is kind. And Lord, will you help us day in and day out to abide in your word? Will you help us to prioritize time with you in your word and time in prayer so that at your coming, Lord, that we do not shrink back, but we have this confidence, not in our own works, but in you, that you have paid the price in full. God, will you do this in us? We pray and ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.